Ontario voters go to the polls on June 2nd, but the much-anticipated election campaign got off to a slow start last week. Much debate centered around highways and transit as the Liberals and the NDP tried to make a dent in the PC's polling lead. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post columnist Sabrina Madeau joins me to discuss how the major parties have fared so far, why the province's COVID-19 response has not been a bigger issue, and what we can expect in the coming weeks. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Sabrina, we are one week into the Ontario election campaign, and I'm wondering from your perspective, where do things sit? Like, what does the first week of the campaign look like for you? Honestly, it's been a pretty boring first week of the campaign. There haven't been any major lightning bolt moments, and a big reason for that is that Doug Ford, who of course is the incumbent, is campaigning as little as humanly possible. (laughs) He's barely doing campaign stops. He's not taking many questions from the press. For example, after the debate yesterday, he was the only uh, party leader to not take questions afterwards, and he's just generally avoiding making any of his signature flubs, which from a campaign perspective is smart because really it is his race to lose. He's leading in the polls. It looks like he's going to get another majority unless something really crazy happens. So we've missed out on that. And when he does speak, it's just about highways. And highways are not the most exciting issue for the public to debate. It's a pretty safe thing for him to talk about. So that's what we're seeing from him. And then from the Liberals and NDP, they really haven't managed to break through in any big way. The biggest announcement from Stephen Del Duca has probably been his proposal for bucket air transit rides for the next two years. And that made headlines for a couple days. But really, it's kind of this pandering populist announcement that's reminiscent of Doug Ford's promise for Bucket Beer in the last election, which was heavily criticized. So it's kind of funny they're doing a similar uh, ploy now. Mm-hmm. But there's no real substance in there for how he's going to actually fix the region's transit issues, which are pretty severe. And then for the NDP, while they managed to become opposition, of course, in the last election, they seem to be slowly dropping in the polls to the Liberals. I think that's because Andrea just hasn't managed to um, really capture the public imagination, which is interesting because a lot of signature NDP issues like labor, like affordability, issues for the working class are major concerns of the public right now, but they just don't have any policies that seem to be uh, sticking. And you mentioned that it is Doug Ford's race to lose. And so you would assume that the Liberals and the NDP would really need to stand up and hit the ground running. I know the NDP tried to do that by releasing their platform in advance of the election, but a lot of those policies kind of dovetailed with what the federal NDP and the federal liberal government are doing in terms of childcare and dental care and pharmacare. Is it just a case of that a lot of the wind was was pulled from their sails too early? I think you're right. That's part of it. Even as we were coming to do this podcast, the federal NDPs were making an announcement about affordability. And I think that the push from the Liberals and the NDP federally have overshadowed some of the provincial parties' platforms. But also, they just don't seem to have any really big, maybe radical is the wrong word to use, but like imaginative ideas that are really going to appeal to people and get them out to the polls and inspire them. 
and they're just lacking that. And I think Andrea is a leader as well. While she's obviously a very intelligent and competent woman, and I say a skilled politician, I think publicly when she's speaking, she lacks that fire. She she doesn't have the ability to necessarily convince people that she relates to them and feels their anger and their distress, nor does she have the ability to really motivate them. So I think that hasn't helped their cause when it comes to communicating with potential voters. You mentioned Tuesday and it was the first debate of this campaign. A, I'm surprised the debate was this early in the race. Uh, someone watching from afar, I'm used to debates and federal campaigns being a little closer to election day. Was there anything out of the debate that you feel changed the calculus for anybody? Or was it just they came into it in a certain position and they leave in a certain position? I think it was more of the status quo, like you said, came into the debate in a certain position and left that as well. Neither the Liberals nor NDP managed to really take any big stabs at Doug Ford. Certainly nothing that will change the polls or hurt him in the long run. And the other odd thing about the debate, other than it being early in the campaign, is that it was at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, which (laughs) most Ontarians probably aren't tuning into that. They're busy at work. So I don't think your average voter probably caught much of the debate at all. That's wild. <laughs> as an aside, I, you know, as someone who who likes watching political debates, I'm used to, you know, make dinner, sit down in front of the TV in the evening, have some popcorn, crack a beer and, and watch the debate. So, I mean, an afternoon debate definitely seems, seems strange. One thing I'm curious about, and I, I want to get your thoughts on, heading into this campaign, I had convinced myself that we'd be looking at the first major referendum on a government's pandemic performance, that Doug Ford having been in power through the whole pandemic, and now we've gone through two years of COVID-19, that he would face an opposition that was either railing on his healthcare policy, how he's handled the pandemic, the amount of people who've died, long-term care. It doesn't appear that that has been a substantive issue in this campaign. You know, as you mentioned, Ford himself is campaigning on highways, and we can talk about the highway approach in a bit. And I would assume that the liberals and the NDP would have jumped all over it, but it doesn't appear that they have. Am I right in that assumption that it just hasn't been the issue that I expected it would be? And why is that? You're absolutely correct. And I've been surprised to see that as well, especially because Doug Ford's approach to the pandemic faced heavy criticism throughout the last two years, and it affected him negatively in approval polls. He had some famous screw-ups, like when he went to close down playgrounds, and then the police forces decided they weren't going to enforce that, and he had to walk it back two days later. His idea about putting an iron ring around long-term care homes, which he never did, and then they suffered many more deaths. There are so many things that the NDP or the Liberals could come out and really hit him on, but for whatever reason, they've decided not to do that. And the only thing I can think is that The public is really done with the pandemic at this point. They don't want to hear about it, and they particularly don't want to think about any more restrictions or mandates coming back. And because the Liberals and the NDP don't have, at this point, an alternative to Ford's current stance on the pandemic and current policies, I think they're just kind of avoiding talking about it because they don't want to become the parties that are very pro-mandate or pro-putting any sort of restrictions back in in the future. They want to avoid that in the public conversation right now. In terms of healthcare policy and healthcare spending, though, is there not room for the Liberals and the NDP to say, you know, under the Ford government, we saw these issues in long-term care. We want to make sure that we protect our most vulnerable. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. 
in these areas? Or like, are we seeing that from them at all? There is that. And they've started to do that. And it is in their campaign promises. There are promises for more funding. There are proposals about not having private long-term care homes anymore. But they just, again, haven't really captured the public imagination. And I don't know if that's because people just are done. They don't want to hear about it. They have pandemic fatigue or they're not being effective enough communicators in how they're positioning those messages and those proposals. Now onto highways. I know early on you wrote a column, an Ontario election all about highways. Oh God, make it stop. What is Doug Ford's obsession with highways? Is it a way to spark the economy to get some people who may not have been working back to work post pandemic? Or is it just an idea to say like, well, this is, I'm building this. Look at me, I'm getting it done. Because I think that's their slogan, isn't it? Get it done. Yes. And his campaign bus is called the Yes Express. So (laughs) he's all about getting it done this campaign season. I think there is that. I mean, he likes the image of being the person who's building things and getting something done. And most voters aren't super opposed to highways. In fact, if they think about it, they probably quite like the idea of highways. So it's not something he's going to face fierce opposition over, except for some more niche environmental groups. And it's something he can talk about safely. From his perspective as well, yes, he would argue that there will be economic benefits. It will also, during the housing crisis, potentially lead to more communities being within a realistic commuting distance of Toronto, although that's debatable because highways fill up very quickly, as we know, and they just feed into the other highways that already have a lot of congestion. But I think it's mostly he feels it's a safe issue and it looks like he's doing something and he's going to run with it until another party changes the conversation. We'll be right back. Sabrina, we have... Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, who is a former infrastructure and transportation minister in the previous Liberal government, now campaigning against building highways. How do the Liberals square that circle? The Liberals have been focusing more on transit than highways. Their argument would be that we need to focus on transit infrastructure and devote the funding that Doug Ford would put towards highways to that And that comes into their um, bucket fare transit plan over the next couple of years. But again, because Ontario and especially transit in the GTA is in such dire straits and has been so stressed for so many years, Del Duca doesn't actually have a lot of credibility on that file because he's trying to convince people he's going to have the big solutions for transit. Yet he was in a position where he could have been fixing transit for years prior. So he has to walk an interesting fine line there. Now, where I'm at out here in Alberta, every election, there seems to be some kind of candidate controversy with various parties in past elections. It's been conservative parties. In Ontario, the first week of this campaign, we've seen a bit of a candidate controversy coming from the Liberal Party. And I remember seeing a tweet a couple weeks ago from a liberal hopeful and Naomi Sayers who had hoped to run for the Liberal Party basically being told that she had been turned down as a liberal candidate. And there was a story out of, I think it was Sue Today, that kind of broke down the controversy. And we had the liberals dump Sayers as a prospective candidate in favor of a young young man, 18-year-old, still in high school. I'm, I'm wondering, what can you tell me about this controversy? 
Yeah, it was a really weird and shocking situation because Naomi Sayers sounds like a progressive political party's dream candidate on paper. She's a respected female Indigenous lawyer. She's been called to the bar in two provinces, Ontario and Alberta. She's a human rights advocate. She's been a university professor. She's testified before Parliament. And she's been a Bay Street lawyer. So she sounds like the complete package. And she has a really good reputation in the community as well. But when she sought the Liberal nomination for Sault Ste. Marie, they rejected her and instead decided to nominate, although they've since rescinded that, a white male high school student who doesn't even live in the jurisdiction. He lives three hours outside of it. So that was very confusing until you look a bit more into why they would have rejected Naomi. They mentioned one of the major reasons was her social media presence. And Naomi is very open about her past as a sex worker, um, specifically as a stripper. And she embraces that as part of her story. And it also informs her political views when it comes to standing up for marginalized workers and female rights and also her firsthand experience with the justice system. So this isn't something she hides and nor should it be. And it's obviously a huge double standard if that's what caused them to reject her because the liberals are always speaking about how they're the feminist party and they're looking for gender parity and they want to stand up for women's issues and certainly not shame their sexuality. And here they might be rejecting a candidate because of her past and her openness about her sex work. The other thing in Naomi's social media history that's interesting is while she's always said she's a liberal, she's a card-carrying liberal, she has been very critical of Justin Trudeau, especially when it comes to things like clean water for Indigenous communities and also his treatment of female cabinet ministers. She's actually said something along the lines of, you know, I'm a liberal, but I hate Trudeau and doesn't everybody. (laughs) And I could see that raising some eyebrows because the Liberal Party these days, whether the provincial or the federal party, They're all about towing the party line and not stepping outside of that and certainly not criticizing Trudeau, who is treated like he can do no wrong. But that's really harmful, again, if the reason why she's been rejected is because she criticized the party's leader over some very real issues before she was even entering politics. You would think that a political party would value voices that are going to hold them accountable and bring new perspectives rather than just syncopats. And maybe that's, again, why a high school student who had just campaigned with the liberals for two years appealed to them because he had been indoctrinated early into that culture and probably wouldn't be too questioning. And that's not a hit on him personally. That's just the nature of youth and not having as much political experience in the real world. The one thing I find curious, and maybe they're just trying to deal with the controversy and end it as quickly as possible, this the idea that they have this candidate who, you know, as you mentioned, he's campaigned with the liberals before. He served as a liberal youth panelist on a serious XM radio show. Why would they dump him? Is it just to, to move on from the controversy? And in the wake of that, who do they have to replace either of them? I think they did want to move on from the controversy. They probably did not see this blowing up like it did. There was also a column in the Toronto Sun by Warren Kinsella that revealed the teen's former Instagram handle was Slap My Nuts MC, and that he had participated in some online chats that had some um, questionable things going on, although it wasn't clear whether he was actually someone who made some of these controversial comments or 
whether he was just part of these chats. So apparently the Liberal Party said that didn't come up in the vetting process, and that's part of why they rejected him quickly. And quite frankly, I think there's just been such a debacle where they've done a disservice to this kid as well, who, you know, he's young, maybe he's, you know, made some misjudgments, but he could one day be a great politician or contribute to their party, but because they haven't vetted him and because they didn't do their research and they were, quite frankly, lazy, they've now put him in a bad position and jeopardized his future as well. Moving on to the next three weeks of the campaign, what do you expect to see from the parties in terms of issues that they may raise? And I guess, what do you hope to see from the rest of the campaign? What are some areas that you'd like to see these parties focus on? I think like we spoke about earlier, that there should be more of a reckoning about how the progressive conservatives handled the pandemic and what change there would be going forward. That obviously has hugely impacted the province and the lives of every single Ontarian over the last few years and has resulted in a lot of illness and death. So I would like to see the parties take that on more seriously. And the other big issue is affordability and especially the housing crisis, which has been going on in Ontario longer than it has in even the rest of the country. And there still don't seem to be any real solutions from the parties, and they don't seem to be speaking about it in a way that really reflects how dire the situation is. So I'd like to see more of that. And I would also like to hear more from the provincial Greens, actually. I think it's unfortunate that the federal Green Party made such a laughingstock of themselves during the federal election with all their inner party turmoil because it's positioned the Greens as, once again, an unserious party who no one really listens to or even would ever consider voting for. But the um, provincial Greens, I was looking at their platform, actually have some interesting ideas when it comes to healthcare, mental health, and affordability, specifically an actually meaningful tax on real estate speculators. So I'd at least like to see their ideas debated a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on that note, do you expect any of the right wing I guess, fringe or or outsider parties to make much of an impact in the next few weeks, Derek Sloan and his cohort and the True Blue Party? Honestly, no. I think they're going to stay pretty fringe. I don't think your average voter has probably even heard of them. And the progressive conservatives very clearly do not want to entertain any of that wing at all. So unless something really out of left field happens, or should I say right field, um, (laughs) I don't think they'll be part of the conversation, really. Excellent. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Sabrina, always a pleasure to talk politics. Thanks for having me. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sabrina Mado. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.